Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 58. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're doing well. Today on the show, we are taking some time to unpack the OSHA, that's the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the OSHA standard 1910.1030, which is more commonly known as the Bloodborne Pathogen Standard. There's a lot of material in this standard, so spend some time with me, hang out with me, and let's unpack this standard. But before we get into the bloodborne pathogen goodness, the 2022 annual conference and expo will be here before you know it. It is April 23rd through the 27th. Sign up now, make your plans to join me. So I heard some encouraging news the other day. I took my son to the pediatrician. He had strep throat. Well, while I was there, I was talking to the doctor and he mentioned that the COVID rates were declining. In fact, they had not had any positive cases in the past three weeks. So I, you know, that is really encouraging. And I I know some of you folks out there think that Texas is kind of wheels off uh, when it comes to COVID, but you know what? It seems that things are looking up you know, not only in Texas, but around the country as well. So if you're tired of the winter, if you're tired of the snow and tired of the cold weather, the typical weather in San Antonio during April is 78 to 84 degrees. Perfect weather for sitting outside on the river walk, sipping on a margarita. So speaking of margaritas, and if you know me, you know that I'm just really not much of a drinker. I, I never really have been. I, you know, in fact, I can count on one hand how many drinks I've had in a year, right? So I'm not a big drinker. Well, the other day I was on a date with my wife, no kiddos, which was great. And we were sitting at a Mexican restaurant and they had a Jamaica margarita. And I was like, what? Heck yes, I'm having one of those. Well, if you're not familiar with a uh, Jamaica, it is a fabulous and Yes, I know. I just said fabulous. And well, it's, it's just because that's what it is. It's a fabulous Mexican drink. Uh, it's more of like a, uh, a hibiscus iced tea uh, type beverage. Well, I, and I personally call it Mexican Kool-Aid because it's so good. It's just so good. So good. When it hits your lips, it's just so good. So anyway, I was, I was drinking this Jamaica margarita and the whole situation just reminded me about sipping that margarita on the river walk. So join me in San Antonio for the nice weather, a cold margarita by the Riverwalk. And while you're there, hey, you might as well enjoy the world's largest face-to-face educational event devoted to you, the sterile processing professional. All right, 
OSHA standard 1910.1030 bloodborne pathogens. So why are we talking about this today? Well, this standard is packed full of information that directly impacts sterile processing. So I did some research for you and I came up with a few numbers that you might find interesting. So if you look at the Amy ST79 2017 standards, now this is the steam sterilization standards that we should all be following. Well, the OSHA 1910.1030, the bloodborne pathogen standard is referenced 13 times in the Amy standard. And then in the Amy ST91 standard, which is the endoscope standard, it is referenced eight times. So it really all just points to just how important the information in this OSHA 1910.1030 standard really is. So some background, again, OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. It was created in 1971. Uh, it operates under the U.S. Department of Labor. Its primary role and responsibility is to protect workers from occupational caused illnesses or injuries. Now, many of the OSHA regulations and standards are represented in laws passed by Congress. Okay, so sterile processing professionals should be aware of the OSHA regulations that pertain to their work, mainly because it's, it's the law. It's something we need to do and something we need to follow. So this document is essentially, like I said, it's essentially law. We have to follow it. So that's why we're taking the time really to unpack the standard today and kind of give you a taste of everything that's in it. So let's just start at the beginning of this document and let's, that starts with the scope and it applies to all occupational exposures to blood or other potentially infectious materials. And then it goes on and it lists uh, a page or two, maybe three pages of definitions. Now I'm not gonna read all those to you, but there is one that I want to highlight here and that is other potentially infectious material and what that means. And so it has a couple meanings. It means uh, the following human body fluids and it lists every body fluid you can think of as infectious or potentially infectious. And then it also talks about uh, under that definition, any tissue or organ, anything that's in other than intact skin, right? So, uh, and then it also talks about uh, HIV containing cells and tissue and cultures and things like that. So all that's listed in the definitions and you can read that for yourself if you really want to. Let's go into exposure control. So uh, the exposure control plan, each employer having an employee with occupational exposures as defined in the sections above uh, or in this section, you know, must have an exposure control plan designed to eliminate or minimize employee exposure. Okay. And so the exposure plan contains a lot of different elements. You need uh, to evaluate an evaluation of circumstances surrounding exposure incidences. Each employer shall ensure that a copy of the exposure plan is accessible when asked about it and accessible to employees. So you have a right to have access to this. 
The exposure control plan shall be reviewed and updated at least annually and whenever necessary to reflect new or modified tasks and procedures that affect occupational exposures and reflect new or revised employee positions with occupational exposure. Okay, so the plan has to uh, be updated as uh, potentially uh, infectious processes or procedures uh, come into the facility. The exposure plan has to reflect changes in technology uh, that, and it has to spell out or call out things that eliminate or reduce exposure to bloodborne pathogens. An employer who is required to establish an exposure control plan shall solicit input from non-managerial employees, right? So they want input from someone other than uh, someone who is a manager, you know, somebody uh, hopefully with direct contact who are potentially exposed to injuries, uh, maybe whether it's from contaminated sharps or uh, exposures to fluids. Uh, like in decontamination. So all that stuff uh, has to be contained in the exposure plan. Each employer who has an employee with uh, potentially occupational exposure shall prepare expo an exposure determination. So again, that plan, they have to evaluate that plan, right? And a list of all the job classifications in which that employee does the jobs, all that information has to be uh, documented and in this plan. All right, it goes on to talk about PPE uh, briefly here, and we're going to jump back into it later. But the, the plan, you know, it has to uh, determine, you know, what is what kind of PPE is needed, right? Personal protective equipment. Now, methods of compliance. So, universal precautions shall be observed to prevent contact with blood or other potentially infectious material. So under circumstances when uh, it's difficult to differentiate between body fluid types, or it's, if it's even impossible, then all fluids uh, shall be considered potentially infectious materials. And I can see that in decontamination. You don't know what's on that. You know, you don't know what's coming down. You know, sometimes you, you see blood, it's typically red, right? But other fluids, you don't know. So it should all be considered potentially infectious materials. Control practices, engineering and work practice controls shall be used to eliminate or minimize employee exposure uh, where occupational exposure remains after the institution of these controls, then uh, personal protective equipment shall be used. So they need to do, you know, your workplace needs to do everything they can to eliminate or minimize employee exposure. You know, this is like uh, if you have, you know, in the operating room, you know, if they're, they need to remove, you know, fluids, maybe they have a hopper in the operating room before they send stuff down. If they can remove, you know, fluids in the operating room and not send that down to decontamination, then that's what they should be doing, right? And that minimizes exposure to you and having to dump body fluids. Employers shall provide hand washing facilities which are readily accessible to employees. Okay, when provisions of hand washing facilities are not feasible, the employer shall provide either an appropriate antiseptic hand cleanser uh, in conjunction with a clean cloth or paper towels or antiseptic towelettes, 
When antiseptic hand cleaners or towelettes are used, hands shall be washed with soap and running water as soon as feasible. Employers shall ensure that employees wash their hands immediately or soon after feasible after removing gloves or other personal protective equipment. You know, that's kind of our hand hygiene moments, right? Whenever you remove gloves, you should always be washing your hands. And it's the responsibility of the employer to make sure those facilities have hand washing capabilities. Now, employers shall ensure that employees wash hands and other skin with soap and water, flush mucous membranes with water immediately or soon after as feasible following contact of such body areas with blood or potentially infectious materials, right? So uh, anytime you come, come in contact with body fluids directly on your skin, you need to uh, wash your hands and remove that immediately. Uh, the, the, the standard also goes in and it talks about uh, contaminated needles. So uh, if you have a contaminated needle or you have any contaminated sharps that come down to sterile processing, there's some things you shouldn't do. You shouldn't recap those needles, right? Uh, don't try to remove them. You know, heaven forbid we get uh, sharps in our decontamination area. But uh, the fact is, is we're all human and things like that do happen, right? So uh, be careful with sharps, especially if they come down. If you if you happen to get a sharps injury, you know, here's where you're going to look to. It has guidance of what you should do. So it says immediately or soon after uh, as possible after use, contaminated reusable sharps shall be placed in an appropriate container until properly reprocessed. Now, we don't reprocess those things. So these are going, you know, pretty much primarily into those sharps containers, any type of needle or uh, scalpel blade or things like that. Either it's hypodermic or uh, suture needles. And then it goes back, and this is what we're probably more familiar with, this terminology, when it comes to sharps and handling sharps. And it says, these containers shall be puncture-resistant, label or color-coded in accordance with the standard here, leak-proof on size and bottom, and in accordance with the requirement set, and blah, 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 uh, in paragraph so-and-so. So all that information, you know, again, we've heard that before, you know, when we're transporting sharps, puncture resistant, it needs to be labeled, right? It needs to be leak proof, okay? So things we've heard before. So no eating, drinking, smoking, uh, applying cosmetics or lip balms, handling contact lenses, all these things are prohibited in work areas where there is reasonable likelihood of occupational exposure. Huh. Okay. So this is why we can't drink. We can't eat in the decontamination area, right? So here you go. And you really shouldn't be doing this in any other areas of sterile processing with the exception of the break room, right? So keep your food, uh, keep your drinks, keep it out of your sterile processing areas. Uh, the, the lip balm's new. I haven't heard that one. And I, I don't ever remember the contact lenses placing those in these areas, but there you go. Don't do it. Okay. So it goes on to say that food and drinks shall not be kept in refrigerators, freezers, shelves, cabinets, or on countertops, bench tops, where blood or other potentially infectious materials are present. 
right? So you can't even store that stuff in the areas that we are working in, okay? Needs to be in the break room. Uh, don't do it. I know the water bottle, you know, it would be nice in decontamination if you had a water bottle, but here this is the, it says not to, and that's what we need to follow. All right, all the procedures that involve blood or other potentially infectious materials shall be performed in such a manner as to minimize splashing, spraying, splattering, and the generation of droplets of the substances. So, uh, you know, this is why we clean instrumentation in the decontamination area underwater, right? To prevent splashing, spraying, splattering, aerosolation of infectious materials, right? There we go, right there. Now, here is something uh, that following these statements that is kind of disturbing. Mouth pipetting, which is suctioning of blood or other potentially infectious materials, is prohibited. Now, did you hear that? Mouth pipetting or suctioning of blood, like with your mouth, suctioning of blood with your mouth or other potentially infectious material is prohibited. Now, I didn't know that this was a problem, right? Again, mouth pipetting or mouth suctioning of blood. Yeah, yeah, no thanks, right? Well, what's funny, I guess funny not funny, is this is here because at some point somebody did this or this was a practice. So much so that they had to put this specific example in the standard. Well, I have, I have faith in all of you guys out there, all my podcasters, that you are not going to uh, suction uh, with your mouth any blood or potentially infectious material. No pipetting, uh, if you will. All right, I think we can move on from that one. Uh, it goes on to talk about specimens. Specimens uh, or other potentially infectious materials shall be placed in the container, which prevents... Ah, here we go again. Uh, leakage during collection, handling, processing, storing, transport, uh, and shipping, right? So again, we're containing that and it has a lot of the same recommendations that we know of for transport. And that is the container for storage, transport, or shipping shall be labeled, color-coded, closed prior to being stored, transported, or shipped. When a facility utilizes universal precautions in the handling of specimens, the labeling, color-coding of specimen is uh, not necessarily uh, provided containers that are recognizable, and that really doesn't apply too much to us. Um, but what I think it is important here is, you know, things, same thing with sharps is that we're going into this container, all right? Anytime we have this container and we're doing something with infectious substances, then we are labeling it. It's color-coded. You know, we have these, uh, the container needs to be fluid resistant, sharp, you know, puncture resistant, you know, all of these things. Uh, and it also talks about if outside contamination of the primary container occurs, then the primary container shall be placed within a secondary container, which prevents leaks during handling and processing. You know, and goes on to storage, transport, and shipping. All of those with that label uh, color-coded, okay? And then it talks a little bit more about the specimen again. Uh, if, there, if the specimen could puncture the primary container, then you need a secondary container, which is puncture resistant, right? Same characteristics when we talk about sharps. 
equipment, uh, equipment which may become contaminated with blood or other potentially infectious materials shall be examined prior to servicing or shipping, shall be decontaminated as necessary, unless the employer can demonstrate that the decontamination of such equipment or portions of such equipment is not feasible. Okay, again, we kind of touched on these things. Again, sharps and specimens, we kind of treat the way we transport the same way we treat those. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later on at the end of the program here. But so it goes back on and, and we're going to go more a little bit more in depth about personal protective equipment. Now, when there is an occupational exposure, the employer shall provide at no cost to the employee, no cost to you, appropriate personal protective equipment, such as, but not limited to, gloves, gown, laboratory coats, face shields, mask, eye protection. So personal protective equipment will be considered appropriate only if it does not permit blood or other potentially infectious material to pass through it or reach the employee's work clothes. Street clothes, undergarments, skin, eye, uh, mouth, other mucous membranes under normal conditions of use and for the dur duration of the time which the PPE will be used. So you are entitled to have PPE that is essentially fluid resistant for the activities that are in decontamination, right? It says it right there. You need to have personal protective equipment provided to you at no cost that will protect you from the environment that we're working in. Okay, so that is your right uh, as an employee working for an employer who has infectious materials or substances, okay? The employer shall ensure that the employee uses appropriate personal protective equipment. So here, here you know, this statement suggests that you know, especially if you're a manager or you're a leader in sterile processing, it might be a good idea to audit every now and then, making sure that your folks or the folks working in decontam or wherever they're working, they are wearing the appropriate personal protective equipment, right? It says right here, employer shall ensure that the employee uses personal protective equipment, right? And so this, these are the kind of statements that uh, Joy Commission, you know, can pull out and say, hey, it says right here, you're supposed to ensure that it's happening. How are you ensuring that your folks are wearing PPE appropriately, right? Good idea to have an audit. You know, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be every day, doesn't have to be every week. A random audit to ensure that you're in compliance with this standard. It goes on to say that the employer shall ensure that appropriate personal protective equipment in the appropriate sizes are available. It says that they're readily accessible at the work site or is issued to an employee. Okay. Hypoallergenic gloves, glove liners, powderless gloves, or other similar alternatives shall be readily accessible to those employees who are allergic to gloves normally provided. Okay, this is important because not one size fits all, right? I'm a bigger guy. My hands are bigger. You know, if, if you know, what I wear doesn't necessarily going to fit somebody else. So according to this statement, in this standard, you have to have PPE that fits appropriately, fits and protects, 
So if you can't wear certain types of mask, or if you can't wear certain types of gloves, then it is the responsibility of the employer to provide an alternate, an alternate PPE to you. Okay. So that just gives you ammunition. Like if you have gloves that are, you know, you're breaking out, you have a sensitivity to, or I've seen it mask, somebody wearing a mask and they have a sensitivity to that mask, then it is your responsibility or your employer's responsibility to provide that for you. It's your responsibility to let them know you need it. Okay. Uh, employers shall clean, launder, and dispose of personal protective equipment. No cost to the employee. I kind of think about this as, you know, really when you talk about a tire, <clears throat> when you go into laundering of things like that. So, uh, again, if you, you're wearing scrubs, your, your employer has to launder and provide those for you. If you are using some sort of reusable uh, PPE device, then the employer shall repair or replace the PPE as needed to maintain its effectiveness at no cost to you, the employee. If your garments, uh, if they are ever penetrated by blood or other potentially infectious materials, garments shall be removed immediately or as soon as feasible. All PPE shall be removed prior to leaving work or the work area here. When personal protective equipment is removed, it shall be placed in an appropriate designated area or container or storage. Uh, if it needs to be laundered, it would be laundered. But um, really, most of the time we're using disposable PPE. So it needs to go into a dedicated or really a dedicated trash, which just means regular trash within the uh, decontamination area. All right, goes on to talk about some gloves. Gloves shall be worn when it can be reasonably anticipated that the employee may have contact with blood or other potentially infectious material, mucous membrane, non-intact skin. Disposable single-use gloves such as surgical or examination gloves shall be replaced as soon as practical when contaminated or as soon as feasible if they are torn, punctured, or when their ability to function as a barrier has been compromised. These uh, single-use disposable gloves shall not be washed or decontaminated for reuse. Yeah, that's kind of like our single-use items, right? You know, the, some of these gloves are single-use items. You can't reuse them. Don't reuse them. Get a new pair. Get a fresh pair. Mask and eye protection and face shields. So mask in combination with eye protection devices such as Goggles or glasses with the solid side shields. I, th I think that's a tongue twister. Solid side shields or chin link face shields shall be worn whenever. Here's another one. Splashes, sprays, splatters, or droplets of blood or other potentially infectious, infectious material may be generated. And eye, nose, or mouth contamination can be reasonably anticipated. Uh, gowns, aprons, other body protective clothing, appropriate protective clothing, uh, such as, but not limited to gowns, aprons, lab coats, clinical jackets, or similar outer garments shall be worn in occupational exposure situations. Now the type and characteristics will depend on the task, surgical caps or hoods, 
shoe covers, or boots shall be worn in instances where gross contamination can reasonably be anticipated. Sounds a whole lot like decontamination. All right, a little change of subject, housekeeping. Employers shall ensure that the worksite is maintained in a clean and sanitary condition. The employer shall determine and implement an appropriate written schedule for cleaning and the methods of decontamination based on the location within the facility, the type of surface to be cleaned, type of soil present, the task or procedures being performed in the area. So there needs to be a written schedule either through EVS or for through sterile processing, right? So here it is, here's the regulation to go to if your sterile processing is not being cleaned, right? It says it right here. Let's go back here, I'm gonna go back. Uh, it's to be maintained in a clean and sanitary uh, condition, right? Based upon, you know, the type of uh, surface being cleaned, the soil that's present, you know, we work in a, a, a uh, heavily soiled area with the infectious material that comes through, right? So it needs to be cleaned and needs to be cleaned properly. So you need to have a written schedule, either through EVS or through you guys, right? So there's the regulation for that if you're having those issues. All equipment and environmental and working surfaces shall be cleaned and decontaminated after contact with blood or other potentially infectious material. Contaminated work surfaces shall be decontaminated with an appropriate disinfectant after completion of the procedure, immediately or soon after as feasible when surfaces are uh, contaminated or after any spills of blood or other potentially infectious materials. Now it says here at the end of the work shift, if the surface may have been uh, contaminated since the last cleaning. And it goes on and talks about a, a lot of waste. And the only reason I, I put waste here is because here we go again, you know, waste, regulated waste, non-regulated waste, it all needs to be kind of treated the same. And we have this verbiage of closable, puncture resistant, leak proof on sides and bottoms, label color coded in accordance with what we've already talked about. You know, so it, it's that same recurring theme, puncture resistant, leak proof on sides, color coded, labeled, right? Okay, so the employer, moving on to vaccinations, the employer shall make available the hepatitis B vaccine and vaccination series to all employees who have occupational exposure and post-exposure so this should be made available at no cost to the employee, made available to the employee at reasonable time and place, performed under the supervision of a licensed physician or under the supervision of another licensed healthcare professional. So it is your right to get the Hep B vaccination, the Hep B vaccination series at no cost to you. So if you've you work at a facility, you had your Hep B vaccination series and you move to another facility, then that facility still has to test 
usually for the titers, right? So they'll go ahead and test to make sure that you have that titer. If not, then they will redo your series. And all this again is at no cost to you. So the document also goes on to talk about signs and labels. Warning signs shall be affixed to containers of regulated waste, refrigerators or freezers containing blood or other potentially infectious material, other containers used to store, transport, or ship blood or other infectious material. You know, anytime we're transporting anything with potentially infectious materials, like things that come on instrumentation. And the label they're talking about is that universal biohazard label. And these labels shall be fluorescent orange or orange red or predominantly so with the lettering and symbols in contrasting colors. So the letters and the symbol has to contrast the fluorescent orange or orange red or red uh, coloring. Labels shall be affixed as close as feasible to the container by a string, wire, adhesive, or other method that prevents their loss or unintentional removal. Red bags or red containers may be substituted for labels. Labels required for contaminated equipment shall be in accordance with everything that we just read. Signs and the employer shall post signs uh, at the entrance of the work areas as necessary. Now moving on to information and training. So the employer shall train each employee with occupational exposure in accordance with the requirements, such as training must be provided at no cost to the employee during working hours. The employer shall institute a training program and ensure employee participation in the program. Training shall provide the following. At the time of the initial assignment to task where occupational exposures may take place, training should happen at least annually thereafter. Annual training for all employees shall be provided within one year of the previous training. Employers shall provide additional training when changes such as modifications of tasks or procedures or uh, any new tasks or procedures affect the employee's occupational exposure. The material must be appropriate in the context and vocabulary to the education level, literacy, and language of the employee. Training programs shall contain at a minimum the following elements. An accessible copy of the regulatory text of this standard and an explanation of its contents. A general explanation of epidemiology and symptoms of bloodborne diseases. An explanation of modes of transmission of bloodborne pathogens. An explanation of employer's exposure control plan and the means by which the employee can obtain a copy of the written plan an explanation of the appropriate methods for recognizing tasks and other activities that may involve exposure to blood and other potentially infectious material, an explanation of the use and limitation of methods that will prevent or reduce exposure, including appropriate engineering controls, work practices, and personal protective equipment. Information on the type, proper use, location, removal, 
handling, decontamination, and disposal of PPE. An explanation of the basis for selection of PPE. Information on the Hep B vaccine. Information on the appropriate actions to take and the persons to contact in an emergency when it involves blood or other potentially infectious material. An explanation of the procedures to follow if exposure incidents occur, including methods of reporting the incident and the medical follow-up that would be made available. An explanation of signs and labels, color coding, an opportunity for interactive questions and answers with persons conducting the training session. Person conducting the training session shall be knowledgeable in the subject matter. Cover the elements contained in the training program as it relates to the workplace and the training. So if you are a manager, are you doing all these things? Are you keeping up with this training? You know, it's it's performed on an end. There was a whole list, right? And you may need to get a copy to go over it. But, you know, and if you're an employee, are you getting this information? It says that you have to have a copy of this standard, right? You need to be taught these things. You know, I wonder if that's really happening out there. I, I'll be completely honest. When I was a manager, I didn't do that. Right? I mean, I taught some of these things, but I didn't go down this list of stuff and address every single thing. So if you're not a manager, uh, you need, you know, you know, you need to be getting a tr this training. And if you're a manager, you need to be doing it. So it says there, it must be done. It's not an option. All right, record keeping. So the employer shall establish and maintain an accurate record for each employee with occupational exposure. The record shall include the name of the employee, a copy of immunizations, copy of any examinations, medical testing, and all the follow-up things. Most of the time, this stuff is done through occupational health. But uh, when we get to training records, uh, training records shall include the dates of the training, contents, or summary of the training sessions. Also includes the name, qualifications of the person conducting the training, names of the jobs. And here, here's, here's what's important, and here should perk up your ears. Training records. So when you do this training, training records shall be maintained for three years from the date on which the training occurred. So finally, ha, we have a definitive answer for records, right? Well, for records that are not sterilization records, this has nothing to do with sterilization records. Do not say, do not go to someone and say, John said we only need to keep sterilization records for three years. I'm going to deny everything. But what it says is training records for this document, for everything we've been talking about, training records shall be maintained for three years from the date on which the training occurred. All right. Well, hey, at least they gave us a specific answer. Okay. Uh, most of the time, again, sterilization records, there's there's not a specific answer, but here we go. All right, so I have, I've, I've talked a lot. There's a lot in this document. So I want to just give a quick recap of everything we talked about, hit the highlights, so we make sure we got everything. So exposure control plan, every facility should have one. This is normally done through the occupational health department possibly your infectious prevention folks. 
Uh, but your department should have access to this plan. You have a right to have access to this plan, the policy and procedure in the event that an exposure occurs in sterile processing. For example, Sharp's injury, exposure to infectious material. Everyone in the department should be aware of the plan. You know, I'm all too familiar with this plan because when I used to work in the operating room, I have been stuck numerous times on more than one occasion, unfortunately, with a suture needle. You know, usually while retracting, suture uh, surgeon digs right in with that needle. So I know the plan, or I, I did when I was a scrub tech, you know, I did when I was a manager in sterile processing, and the plan was fill out these forms, go to occupational health. Know the plan. All right, number two, uh, universal precaution, precaution. So I'm gonna chalk this up to a tire, right? So the healthcare facility should provide you with scrubs that are laundered at no expense to you. Now, PPE, personal protective equipment, should fit. Again, one size does not fit all. You know, it should be fluid resistant, contain all the elements that we are accustomed to, right? The gloves, mask, goggles, face shields, shoe covers, boots, so on and so on. They need to be fluid resistant, right? Make sure they are. If you have any special requirements, such as sensitivities, they need to be addressed. Again, no cost to you, right? Employers should verify that PPE is being worn when appropriate. This means, again, I said it earlier, this means that you have to do some sort of audit. You need to do something to verify that your folks, that you are wearing the PPE. You gotta you got verify that it's happening. You have the burden of proof. So you need to do it, you need to do something. Number three, housekeeping. The areas of contamination, anything with infectious materials need to be cleaned. In fact, it says to maintain a clean and sanitary conditions, right? You know, I think we can confidently say that cleaning needs to be, at the very least, performed daily in decontamination. You know, if if not daily, I mean, even, even I'm going to go so much that every shift, right? Continually through the day, we should be cleaning these areas. The, the fact is that that when it's clean, you have to have a schedule. You need to have some sort of record. Uh, most likely you're gonna need to collaborate with your EVS folks to make sure that this is being done. No eating and drinking. It's the law. Don't do it. Stop asking if you can. The answer is no, so no. No eating and drinking. Number five, all procedures involving blood or other potentially infectious materials shall be performed in such a manner as to minimize splashing, spraying, splattering, generation, aerosolization of droplets, right? In the decontamination area, you know, the instrumentation should be cleaned under the water. All of this to prevent the splashing, spraying, splattering, aerosolization of infectious materials. Uh, number six, no suctioning of blood or other fluids with your mouth. Enough said. Don't do it. <laughs> number seven, Hep B. Your facility is responsible for providing the Hep B immunization at no cost to you, whether it's the series or whether it's drawing titers. So that is your right. 
Now, whenever you hear someone talk about how to transport infectious materials, you know, for us, it's, it's generally uh, transporting contaminated instrumentation. You know, so whenever you hear somebody talk about it, they're referring to this document, the 1910.1030 Bloodborne Pathogen Standard. Now, if you're listening, you're going to notice that I didn't mention anything in this standard that specifically stated that dirty instruments should be handled like such and such, right? The, the standard doesn't say that. And this is because uh, this example was not used by OSHA, right? What was used was uh, sharps, contaminated sharps, transport of specimens, how to deal with regulated and non-regulated waste. But here's the key. Just because it didn't say instruments doesn't mean that the principles cannot be applied to instrumentation. Right? The definition I read at the beginning said other potentially infectious materials, and it includes... Again, human body fluids and all that that involves. Unaffixed tissue or organs, things containing HIV cells, tissues, cultures, organs, things like all of this can be applied to instrumentation. You know, therefore, we're going to use these principles for transporting dirty instrumentation. Right. So uh, those keywords we've always heard, puncture resistant. We have closable, constructed to contain all contents, prevent leaks and fluids during transport, storage, shipping, a label that's color-coded, you know, closed prior to removal of spillage or protrusion of, of uh, contents during storage and transport. Uh, if out, outside possible, uh, use a secondary container. You know, all those, all those things that we've, we've heard before we can apply from this standard to transporting of instrumentation right so go back and look and just because it doesn't say specifically instrumentation doesn't mean we can't use it and this is where we generally pull from because those samples are pretty good all right number nine regulations for signs and labels. So uh, the signs shall be fluorescent orange or orange red predominantly so with lettering and symbols uh, in a contrasting color. So you got to have that biohazard symbol. It's got to be contrasting. Usually that just means it's going to be black on the orange or black on the orange red or black on red. Uh, the labels shall be affixed as close as feasible to the container. By, by It says by string, wire, adhesive, other methods to prevent the loss or unintentional removal, right? It just needs a stick on there. So it doesn't go anywhere. So everybody knows what's happening with those contents. Information and training shall be provided at no cost to the employee during working hours. The employer shall institute a training program and ensure employee participation in the program. At the time of the initial assignment, so when they come on board, right, or before, you know, before they start doing... Uh, washing instruments in decontamination, they need to have this initial assessment. They, that needs to take place, that education and training. Okay. And, and then after that, at least annually. Uh, record keeping, again, uh, training records shall be maintained for three years from the date on which the training occurred. All right. So all this information, 
everything I've talked about, it's pretty exhaustive, so thanks for sticking with me, but all this information is open to the public and it's easy to access. All you have to do is Googleize OSHA, O-S-H-A, Bloodborne Pathogen, 1910.1030, right? So there's a lot of information we unpacked, right? A lot of information in this standard, this regulation, and you have to do it. <laughs> That's what's funny. You have to do it. So if you don't know about this, go look it up, right? Go check it out for yourself. I'm not making it up. Uh, and, and it's really important. Just make sure that you make sure that your healthcare facility are in compliance with this standard. Well, that was a beast of a standard. Thanks for hanging out with me. Thanks for sticking through it with me and this standard. Lots of information in that thing. Uh, you know what? It, it's really a good resource to look back on. Well, HSPA episode number 58 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes fill out all the required information and select the code Riverwalk. Again, the code for this episode is Riverwalk. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time.